It's a funny place to be, stuck in a seemingly mundane world with an inner knowing that the universe is so much more than our mortal minds can comprehend. Yet we all have the capacity to know peace and our oneness with the wholeness of life. And through these interviews, discussions, and reflections, it is my intention to share this possibility. I'm Ryan Kurzak, and this is the Kriya Yoga Podcast. In September of 2019, when I began the Kriya Yoga Podcast, I thought it was important to speak to the lives of the Kriya Yoga teachers of this tradition. And so the first few episodes are dedicated to Mahavatar Babaji, Lahiri Mahasaya, Swami Sri Yukteswar, and Paramahansa Yogananda. I've gotten some feedback over the years, wondering why I haven't yet spoke to Mr. Davis, my own Kriya Yoga teacher, who is a student of Paramahansa Yogananda. And I've spoken about my relationship with Mr. Davis, I feel quite extensively within the Kriya Yoga Discipleship course, which is available through Teachable. So we're not going to spend a whole lot of time digging into all the stories that I have about my time with Mr. Davis. But what I want to do for this episode is, first, I'm going to read a section from the book, An Essential Guide to Kriya Yoga Practice. And this is coming from the chapter where I, again, talk about, write about, and explore the lives of the Kriya Yoga teachers of the tradition. So I'm going to read the short section related to Roy Eugene Davis. And then after that, I'm going to focus on what did I learn from Mr. Davis? Essentially, what was the major impact that he had on my life as a Kriya Yoga teacher? So that's what we're going to do today. And so once again... I'm going to read first from the book, An Essential Guide to Kriya Yoga Practice, a book that I wrote. And this is coming from Chapter 2, Gurus of the Kriya Yoga Lineage. Roy Eugene Davis. Roy Eugene Davis was born on March 9, 1931 in Levittsburg, Ohio. He grew up in a small rural community where he had many responsibilities on the family farm. Mr. Davis's family was very church-oriented, and Mr. Davis had a deep interest in spirituality at a very young age. Although he would often say that even as a boy, he could see through the dogma at the church services he and his family devoutly attended. Yet he still felt he had a deep calling to speak and teach on spiritual topics. Fortunately, he was introduced to yoga by finding books on the subject at his local library. When speaking of his teenage years, he would often express surprise at how he was able to find such books in a small rural town in the 1940s. During his senior year in high school, Mr. Davis was bedridden for five months with rheumatic fever. Mr. Davis had said that it was this time of rest and seclusion in which he discovered Kriya Yoga and the major purpose of his life. During his convalescence, he had found an advertisement for autobiography of a yogi. After ordering it by mail, he received it and read it avidly. After reading the book, he said that he knew that Paramahansa Yogananda was his guru, was his spiritual teacher. Several months after Mr. Davis's strength had returned, he had decided it was time to go to California to meet Paramahansa Yogananda. After first going to Florida to avoid another Ohio winter, as Mr. Davis would say, he eventually hitchhiked across the United States and arrived in Los Angeles on December 22, 1949. In his later years, Mr. Davis told me that he was once asked if he had had another plan or a plan B or a backup plan if Yogananda did not accept him as a student. And Mr. Davis replied, I didn't have an alternative plan because I knew I was destined to be with him and have his support, encouragement, and guidance. Mr. Davis met Paramahansa Yogananda on December 23, 1949, at Self-Realization Headquarters. When speaking at retreats, he would always describe his experience vividly, as if he was seeing it again for the first time. He said that after he arrived at SRF Headquarters, he had met Donald Walters, Kriyananda, who had asked him how he'd heard of SRF and Yogananda. During this meeting, 
Yogananda had appeared out of a nearby elevator attended by Fay and Virginia Wright. Yogananda approached Mr. Davis and with a gentle handshake asked him how old he was and if his parents knew he was there. After Mr. Davis assured him, Yogananda shared a gesture of blessing and said, That's good. I'll talk with you again. After getting settled into his new quarters, the next day, Mr. Davis attended the six-hour Holy Season meditation with Yogananda and several hundred people. Mr. Davis then waited to meet with Paramahansa Yogananda. During his visit, he told Yogananda that he wanted to be his disciple. Yogananda accepted Mr. Davis and told him he could stay. Yogananda ended the visit by saying to Mr. Davis, Read a little, meditate more, and think of God all the time. Mr. Davis lovingly and fondly shared stories about his time with Paramahansa Yogananda. They were often the main content of his talks while presenting at Center for Spiritual Awareness retreats. And again, as mentioned previously, the book Paramahansa Yogananda, As I Knew Him, by Roy Eugene Davis, contains all the essential stories of Mr. Davis's time with Yogananda. During his time with SRF, Mr. Davis was initiated into Kriya Yoga by Paramahansa Yogananda and accepted into the monastic community of Self-Realization Fellowship. He was later assigned to be a minister at the Phoenix branch, and then in 1951, Yogananda ordained him to teach Kriya Yoga. Mr. Davis enjoyed telling the story of his spontaneous ordination. He had returned to visit Yogananda along with the senior minister of the Phoenix SRF Center. Without premeditation or discussion, Yogananda had asked Mr. Davis to kneel down before him. Yogananda put both hands on his head and said familiar words, I ordain you a minister of self-realization. Teach as I have taught and initiate devotees of God into Kriya Yoga. Herbert Freed, the senior minister of the Phoenix Center, not knowing what to make of what he had just witnessed, asked, Sir, is Roy to perform initiations? Yogananda replied, You too. The same God who is in me is in you. What I have done, you both should do. Mr. Davis would tell that he knew he was too young to formally teach or initiate others into Kriya Yoga at that time. He was barely into his young adult years. Mr. Davis affirmed that Yogananda was preparing him for the future. After Yogananda's passing, Mr. Davis had felt that he needed more worldly experience. Having spent the majority of his life on a small farm in Ohio, and then becoming a monastic, it occurred to him that he needed to learn to live in a larger world, as he would often put it. He then enlisted in the medical corps of the military, where he spent two years. After completing his service, he had planned to go to chiropractic college, begin a holistic wellness practice, and teach as a representative of Self-Realization Fellowship. This had been discussed previously with James Lynn, then president of SRF. However, during this time, Mr. Lynn had passed, and the board did not share the same views as Mr. Lynn or Mr. Davis. From this point forward, Mr. Davis began his independent teaching ministry. He traveled constantly, often living out of his suitcase while teaching Kriya Yoga and giving workshops in more than 50 U.S. cities a year. Before 1970, he had already written and published nine books. For almost 70 years, Mr. Davis selflessly and tirelessly continued sharing Kriya Yoga and representing the Kriya lineage. In the early 1970s, Mr. Davis was invited to serve as the spiritual director for a retreat center in Lakemont, Georgia. This retreat center eventually became Center for Spiritual Awareness, Mr. Davis's world headquarters for his Kriya Yoga ministry. Mr. Davis served as the spiritual director retreat leader, and founder of CSA until his passing on March 27, 2019. During his time at CSA, Mr. Davis hosted multiple retreats a year, initiating tens of thousands of students into Kriya Yoga. He published the quarterly newsletter Truth Journal, which maintained continuous publication for over 40 years. 
Mr. Davis wrote numerous inspirational books on Kriya Yoga and spirituality and traveled around the world sharing Kriya Yoga with all sincere seekers. I was fortunate to have met Mr. Davis for the first time on Monday morning, August 14, 2000. Having had correspondence with him that summer, as I planned to attend the August retreat, I very much looked forward to meeting him. It was after the first meditation session on Monday that I introduced myself. I put out my hand, and he waved it away, pulled me into an awkward hug, and said, I'm glad you're here. Then he gave my shoulder a quick squeeze and moved off to greet the other participants. On that morning, meditating with Mr. Davis, I had a profound feeling of coming home. I felt like I had found what I had been searching for and knew I was in the right place at the right time. After spending the week learning from Mr. Davis and being initiated into Kriya Yoga, I returned home fully dedicated to the practice and arranged my life accordingly to make the most of the opportunity I felt I had been given. And again, that was an excerpt from my book, An Essential Guide to Kriya Yoga Practice. Now, why did I choose to learn Kriya Yoga from Roy Eugene Davis? Well, the answer was fairly utilitarian. I discovered meditation in college. I had read a little bit about it in high school. I'd always had an interest in philosophy and spirituality and psychology and religion, but I didn't really take up a serious practice of meditation until about halfway through my college career. And someone had lent me the book Autobiography of a Yogi. And not knowing much about Indian traditions or yogic traditions or how teacher-student relationships worked, I had read the book and the woman who gave it to me was a Hatha yoga teacher in the area, probably one of two in the whole state of West Virginia at that time that I knew of. And so I assumed since she was a yoga teacher that all I needed to do was have her teach me Kriya Yoga since she seemed to know it. And she said, that's not how it works. She informed me that I could either go to Self-Realization Fellowship in California, Yogananda's organization, or I could take a trip to Northern Georgia and meet Roy Eugene Davis, who is a student of Paramahansa Yogananda, and I could learn Kriya Yoga that way. Since I was just finishing up college, Again, I didn't have a whole lot of cash. I never really traveled that far by myself, let alone flew across the country yet at that time. I decided I was just going to go to Georgia and learn from Mr. Davis at Center for Spiritual Awareness. And while I had a deep appreciation for what was shared in Autobiography of a Yogi, and I was really fascinated with Sri Yukteswar and how Sri Yukteswar was able to train Paramahansa Yogananda, I still didn't quite understand how, again, this yoga tradition worked. And so in my mind, I was really just going to this retreat to learn these techniques so that I could understand the process and practice on my own. However, once I got there, I immediately had and felt a sense of connection, not only to Mr. Davis, but to the entirety of the tradition, which I didn't quite feel when I was reading Autobiography of a Yogi. And so that was a surprise to me. I can remember during that first meditation on Monday morning, I had showed up to the, um, the hall, the meditation hall, about a half hour early. And I was just trying to get settled. While I had some experience with meditation, I would not say I was very good at it. I was still a little squirmy. And a few minutes before 6 a.m., I heard the door open. And I saw Mr. Davis. Again, it was dark. There was a street light outside, which was giving a little bit of light, a little bit of ambience. I saw Mr. Davis walk up to the altar and to light a candle and wave some incense in front of pictures of the gurus. And then he sat down and he began to lead us in a chant, Om Namah Shivaya. And for whatever reason, as soon as I saw him light that candle and wave that incense before the pictures of the teachers, and then when he began chanting Om Namah Shivaya, I actually began crying. I was quiet about it, but I was overcome with a feeling that I had never really felt before. And from that point forward, 
it was very clear to me that this was an important path to follow. And then later in the week, after I had participated in the initiation session and learned the Kriya Yoga practices, um, it was confirmed by other experiences that I had. And so, like I wrote in the book, I felt I had been given a really rare and important opportunity. And after I left that retreat, I decided to make the most of that opportunity. So what I'd like to do now is spend some time discussing what I learned during my time studying with Roy Jean Davis as a Kriya Yoga teacher. And this, we're not going to focus on uh, techniques. We're not going to focus on um, things of that nature because we've already covered a lot of that. And this is available in the Kriya Yoga Apprenticeship course and the Kriya Yoga Discipleship course. I'm going to focus more so on what was, what was it that I learned from him as a role model? How did he live his life? What did he share that was the most important thing for an individual to attend to so that they could live the best life possible, as well as actualize the potential that we have as humans to realize spirit or to be self-realized or to grow into our mental, emotional, and spiritual maturity. And the very first thing that comes to mind was his emphasis on making one's spiritual practice your highest priority. When one's spiritual practice is their highest priority, it tends to make one's life better. It tends to make one's life better because usually people begin to make better choices for themselves and for others and for the planet as they become more conscious and more aware. Also, they develop greater resilience, greater strength, greater faith, and greater trust in the wholeness of life, even during those times of difficulty. So making one's spiritual practice the highest priority, this came through very clearly in all of Mr. Davis's writings and all of his lectures and every time I had a conversation with him. And it was very clear that he didn't really want to hear any excuses about that. Oh, I can't do it because of this. Oh, I can't do it because of that. From his perspective, it seemed like if something was important to you, you could make it happen. You could find a way, even in the most difficult circumstances. And I took that advice very seriously. And that benefited me in my own life when difficult things would come, sometimes very difficult things. I always made my spiritual practice the highest priority. When times were good, I would meditate every day. I would study the Yoga Sutras, the Bhagavad Gita. When times were difficult and I had to be more adaptable, I would still find time, even if it was just a little bit, to contemplate spiritual topics or to practice meditation. So his example and his emphasis towards making your spiritual practice your highest priority, I took that to heart and I found it to be very useful in life. He was also one that stressed a focus on essentials. He didn't think it was very useful to be distracted by too many things. And ultimately that really just is common sense. It just makes sense. So when he would recommend how a person should organize and approach their life, again, spiritual practice would be the first priority. And then from there, one could arrange the rest of their life right down to the job that one had, the friends that one had, the hobbies that one found themselves engaged in. He would encourage me and others to make sure that no aspects of our life took us away from what was most important. And this can be hard for many people because we live in a very interesting world and we live in a very interesting time. And there's often this idea that we should be able to experience and um, have whatever we want and be freely creative however we want and so on. And that's true. We should be freely creative. But many times people get caught up in too many different things and they don't make a whole lot of progress in one particular direction. So the idea of being focused on essentials 
allowed one to develop a successful meditation practice because if you weren't thinking about 20 other things, it was easier to meditate. It allowed one to have a life that supported one's spiritual ideals. And this kind of leads into another part of Mr. Davis's presentation, which was that as Kriya Yoga students, we should be as mentally, emotionally, and spiritually mature as possible. As mentally, emotionally, and spiritually mature as possible. And really, this is the whole path of yoga and meditation, because we're human beings, we're here on this planet, we have an intellect, we have a psychology, we have a mind, we have emotions, we have a lot of stuff that um, other species on the planet don't have. And it's not the purpose of human life to really run around just fulfilling all our whims and all our desires, like animals do. We have a responsibility here to ourselves, to others, and to the planet. And one of the best ways that we can meet that responsibility is to be as mentally sound, as rational as possible, to be as emotionally healthy and strong as possible. And to be spiritually mature really means to have an understanding of what the spiritual life is really all about. It's not uncommon for people who are attracted to the spiritual path to be caught up in a lot more fantasies to kind of think that the spiritual path is going to do something for them that maybe just living a little more responsibly might do for them. And to be spiritually mature is to, um, again, develop a meditation practice that works, but also to study spiritual philosophy, spiritual texts, so that you actually get an understanding of what is being shared in those texts, really understand what it means when Patanjali makes a statement or one of our spiritual teachers has written something in a book to understand what they are intending there without making up your own ideas. You know, for example, Yogananda was once asked um, if he was the reincarnation of Jesus. And this is a story Mr. Davis would tell. And Yogananda would reply, what difference does it make what we call or what we name the waves that rise and fall on this ocean of consciousness. Now, if you understand that topic, you understand that phrase that he just put forth there. What difference does it make the names or what we call the waves that rise on the ocean of consciousness? Yogananda was simply affirming that we are all part of this infinite ocean of spirit, this infinite ocean of consciousness. And what you call yourself, what I call myself, what Yogananda called himself, and so on, these are just names on waves that rise and fall on this vast ocean of consciousness. And that's what he was trying to get across, this idea of oneness. But the individual who asked him that question, when he heard that, he didn't, he didn't reflect upon that, say, oh, that makes sense, we're all one. He said, well, he didn't say he wasn't Jesus in a past life. And so, of course, then we start getting uh, rumors and speculation going on that um, a spiritual teacher has just claimed that he was Jesus in a past life. So our the ideal is to lift our awareness beyond fantasy, beyond the need for interesting stories and speculation into an understanding of what is true and what is real spiritually speaking. And then beyond that, it's not just being able to read a book or listen to a lecture and know what's being conveyed there. But spiritual maturity also requires that we are able to live every moment as often as possible from that realization. And this is the only way that a person can actually move into a state of clarity or a state of self-realization. And again, this is why Roy put so much emphasis on people being as mentally, emotionally, and spiritually mature as possible. He also wished and inspired others and encouraged others 
to take care of their body and to manage their resources well. When he was a student with Paramahansa Yogananda, Yogananda had specifically told him, Roy, take care of your body. You have a lot of work to do in this life. That's not an exact quote, but that's the idea. Take care of your body because you have a lot of work to do in this life. And as long as we are here, we have some reason to be engaged in the processes of life. Even if the only reason we're here is to provide for our family and our loved ones, which is a very big reason to be here, but with the rest of our time to devote it to our spiritual growth process, to devote it to uh, what we are devoted, what we are devoted to spiritually, internally. So if we are able to take care of our body, that means that our body will be strong enough, healthy enough, well-rested enough to access deeper states of consciousness. Because if our body is distracted by weakness or lethargy or drowsiness or even illness, um, this can prevent us from, or can prevent some people, from being able to access deeper states of consciousness. Also, it can get in the way of our ability to be of service to the planet in the best way possible. Just like if you want to be there for your family, if you want to be there for your friends, you're going to do a much better job if you're well-rested, if you're strong, if you're resilient, if you've learned how to deal with stress, if you are psychologically well, and so on. The same thing is true for resources. You know, the path of yoga, we often hear of this emphasis towards renunciation, and many people mistakenly take that to mean they should give up everything and never touch money again, and so on. But having being able to manage your resources well allows you to have the time and the energy and the finances to be able to attend to your worthwhile um, life goals. Again, one of them being your spiritual life. Because when we're stressed about money, when we are stressed about not having enough resources, again, this gets in the way of our ability to focus on our meditation practice and our spiritual practice. Mr. Davis once told a story about a um, student of Yogananda's who he, he had a printing business and he had all, all kinds of opportunities to grow that business and to increase his uh, workload as well as increase the amount of money he was able to bring in. But this student particularly, he decided that he wasn't going to grow his business beyond a certain point. He was going to be able to generate the, the resources and the income that he needed to have a good life so that he had time to focus on his spiritual practice. That was ideal for him. And so he was not distracted by this constant need for growth or being better or being more visible and so on. He did what he needed to do so he had the capacity to focus on his spiritual practice. Now, hardships come and go, and sometimes there are financial difficulties, but very often there are some simple things that we can do to make sure our finances are there to meet our needs, our resources are there to meet our needs. And this comes back to the idea of brahmacharya. And we know that brahmacharya means to conserve your vital forces, which means not to waste your time, not to waste your energy, not to really waste anything. And that doesn't mean to be a hoarder, and it doesn't mean to be neurotic about it. It just means to consciously manage your resources so that you can actually accomplish your goals. And sometimes for many people, what has to come first is a focus on mental and emotional maturity. Because we have to be able to do the work that is put before us without being too childish about it. Sometimes we have to choose to live on a budget and make sacrifices. You can't always travel when you want to travel. You can't always do this or you can't always do that. But as long as you have enough to be able to attend to your worthwhile goals and to attend to that highest priority of spiritual practice, 
well, then you've got what you need. And so the idea of renunciation doesn't mean that you give everything away and that you can't have anything and you can't touch money. It simply means that you live your life in balance, in financial balance, in energetic balance. And this would also go along with um, focusing on who you spend time with. Mr. Davis would encourage me and others to really pay attention, be conscious of the people that we surround ourselves with. Because those people are the ones that um, have the greatest impact on who we are as an individualized aspect of this infinite consciousness. We tend to behave like those people that we surround ourselves with. And so if we are surrounded by dramatic people or manipulative people or people who don't have any boundaries, well then, that's going to get in the way of our life. And it's going to prevent us from being psychologically well and emotionally balanced. In the yoga system in general, there's this emphasis towards satsang, or keeping the, the company of good people. And really, while that might mean that we try to visit with a spiritual teacher whenever we can, ultimately, the idea of satsang and good company means to surround ourselves with people who are supportive of us and whom we can be supportive to in a healthy way. Now, sure, there are plenty of people in your life that are going to say, oh, but you're a spiritual person. You should love everyone. You should take the time of day for every person who comes to you. Well, most of those people are actually fairly manipulative, and they're saying those kinds of things to you because they want something from you. Uh, what I have found is that those individuals who are healthy-minded, who have good boundaries, they will respect your choices. And if you are living well and you are taking care of yourself, what you'll find is they will be happy about that. And so if you put up a boundary and you say, I can't do this right now, I don't either have the energy, the resources, the time, or there are other things going on, they will respect that and they will understand that. They won't keep trying to pull more out of you. And of course, if you are living well, you're being honest and you're not just trying to get out of helping someone or you're not just trying to get out of a responsibility. But um, Mr. Davis would always put an emphasis towards being conscientious, conscious of who you spend time with. And it, it isn't simply just who you spend time with uh, physically. It's who you think about who you are mentally engaged with. You know, you can be in a crowd and not be surrounded by those people because you're not engaged with what they're doing. But in your mind, you could be thinking about a certain person or in a sense, be attuned to a certain person. And that's really uh, who, who your company is. And that's one of the reasons why there is an emphasis towards um, attuning to one spiritual teacher or spending time with one spiritual teacher. Because if, if you think about this person in your mind, um, you will tend to hold yourself to maybe their expectations. If you know that they would expect you to be responsible and truthful and to meditate well and to try to enjoy the process, well, you're more likely to be able to do that. So who you spend time with, this is really an important thing to consider. Mr. Davis had written some books on um, affirmations and, and creative imagination, and he, he would often use these affirmations. He would write them on bookmarks that he would send out to people. He would put them in books. He would speak them at the end of meditations and so on. And he would always say, never to affirm anything about yourself that you don't want to be true. I, I, I can hear him say that again. It's in my mind so clearly because he would say it so often. Never affirm anything you, you don't want to be true for yourself. And he, he would say this because you know, many people would, would, would suffer from negative self-talk or they wouldn't believe in themselves or they didn't think certain things were possible for them. And so spiritually speaking, you never want to say that it is beyond my capacity to know spirit, it is beyond my capacity to meditate. Well, you never want to say, I can't meditate. You never want to say, I don't understand what's in the Yoga Sutras. Sure, it might be true that at this point in time, you're having some difficulty or challenges, 
but you, you don't want to say it because the more you say it, you eventually kind of grow into that. You begin to believe it. So he would encourage people to um, say things that were possible. Like, I can understand what it means to be self-realized. I can understand what's in the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. I can figure out a way to be um, financially responsible. I can figure out a way to uh, limit the drama in my life. I can figure out the way to meditate well so that I can access these deeper states of consciousness. Now, he didn't encourage um, blind faith or just magical thinking. So when you affirm these things, you would hold them as true and then you might actually have to do some work to figure out how to make it possible for you. But by, by affirming in this way, um, you're more likely to see positive results. Just like the more that you talk negatively about yourself or the more that you say something isn't possible, the more likely you're, you, you see limited options. So never affirm anything that you don't want to be true for yourself. And he was always a, a possibility thinker. This was something that he would talk about a lot too. He would say, be a possibility thinker. Don't focus on, don't focus excessively on what could go wrong. I say that because it's good to have a plan and it's good to understand what could go wrong so that you could adjust. But, um, you, you wanted to imagine what was possible for you. Even if you weren't experiencing it right now, even if you didn't know how to get there, even if you didn't know what to do at this very moment, if you were a possibility thinker, you had a, a greater likelihood to find a way there if you're patient and open and receptive. And this applied to uh, difficult periods of life too. Sometimes things go really wrong and it's no problem admitting that. That's just what happens from time to time. But rather than focus on what could really go wrong, imagine what could go right. Because if you can do that even in difficult circumstances, sure, things might not work out the way you want. But because you were a possibility thinker, because you had a little more optimism, you saw more opportunities, you might have found a way to deeply and profoundly make the most of a difficult situation. And that's much better than the alternative. To be in a bad situation and then to make it worse with shame or guilt or limited thinking, well, that's just compounding. If you're in a difficult situation and you're able to find a way to somehow be a possibility thinker, that's his term, be a possibility thinker, then maybe you'll find a way out of it that you couldn't have seen before. Or maybe you'll find a way to grow through the experience. But ultimately, he always put a focus on being a possibility thinker. And this is one of the things I appreciated so much about him was that he, he would say things like, never affirm anything you don't want to be true for yourself. And he would say, be a possibility thinker. But he was also rational and realistic, meaning he didn't want you to ignore things. He didn't want you to ignore problems or ignore situations. He just wanted to encourage myself and others to consider, well, what if there's another way to look at this? What if there's another way uh, to interact with this? So being a possibility thinker, being a possibility thinker, this was one of his ideals. And to follow up with that, um, he would encourage, he would encourage us to always have our highest aims in mind. Meaning when we went into life, rather than being ready to be swayed by this or by that, to go, go into life, to wake up every morning with our highest aim in mind. You know, why are we here? Why are we here collectively? Why are we here as an individual? Why are we here spiritually speaking? And if we're able to hold our highest aims in mind, we will tend to take action which supports those aims. And you'll find that to be true if you observe your life or you observe the lives of others. People who don't have a, any kind of aim, what do they do all day? 
Maybe they watch TV. Maybe they play some video games on their phone. Um, maybe they go to work and they come home and they fill up on potato chips and then uh, fall asleep in kind of a comatose stupor and they wake up the next morning and they drink some coffee to perk themselves back up and they repeat. And they don't really uh, grow in life. They don't really have a sense of being a part of life, of participating in life, of being alive in life. Now, the reasons people do that are numerous. And again, this is not to make anyone feel bad uh, because we all have the reasons that we live the way we do. But remember, when you are engaging in a spiritual practice, when you're trying to live um, with spiritual practice as your highest priority, uh, have that aim in mind. Because if you have that aim, you will tend to make choices that support that aim. If I wake up, and my aim is to be as awake and enlightened as I can be today. And my options are to go back to sleep or to get up and meditate. Well, if I have that aim in mind, I'm more likely to get up and meditate. If my aim is to be of the greatest service to the world as possible, and my options are to you know, shirk my responsibilities and go fishing, or to attend to my duties and help those people I can, I'm going to find myself making the choice of doing my best to help others as I can in relationship to my skills. So having your highest aim in mind, it'll transform your life. Of course, you actually have to do things. Um, rather than just have your highest aim in mind, you have to take actions which support that highest aim. But you are more likely to do that if you have an aim. And this is why many of you who might have seen some of um, Mr. Davis's books, particularly like Seven Lessons in Conscious Living, I think there are a few others, he would often have little spaces at the, at the end of chapters for you to write, write this stuff down. What is important to you? What do you need to do to accomplish that? Because he was trying to encourage people to have the highest aim, to work towards the highest aim, and see what happens. And what you'll find is, this is what I found, you may have an aim and you live, to, you live and you make choices to support that aim. 10, 20 years go by. You might not make it exactly to where you thought you would be, but because every day you tried, you're a heck of a lot closer to it than if you didn't do anything at all. So always have your highest aims in mind. Now it should be obvious, but we'll go ahead and say it anyway. He wanted people, Mr. Davis wanted people to meditate well, alertly, and effectively. He would teach meditation and he would emphasize remaining alert and aware and engaged in the practice. And that's because, you know, probably teaching meditation for so many years, observing people in retreats and so on. You've done this too if you've gone to retreats. You see people who show up and they mean well and they like to talk about meditation. But when it comes time to meditate, within five minutes you hear them snoring beside you. Uh, they aren't actually engaged in the process. So he didn't make he he didn't push this point so hard that it drove people away. Because as you know, if you're not meditating well and someone keeps telling you to meditate well, you're more likely to go find another teacher who's not going to emphasize it so much. Um, but if you paid attention to what he was saying and how he, how often he shared uh, this idea, and it should be true for all spiritual teachers, but we need to learn to meditate well, alertly, and effectively. And to meditate well and effectively, well, you learn that from your teacher. You learn the techniques. You learn how it's done. How to meditate alertly and be engaged in the process. Well, everything else that we've talked about will, will help you there because the more well-rested well you are, the stronger you are, um, the healthier you are, the easier it will be for you to do this. The more mentally and emotionally mature you are, the easier it will be for you to do that because many people come to meditation really as just another escape route. You know, before they smoked cigarettes or, um, did other things. Well, now they've traded that in for sitting there and humming a mantra repeatedly. They're trying to get away from something. They're not trying to develop spiritually speaking. 
And so the more mentally and emotionally mature you are, the more likely you're going to be able to be dynamically engaged in the process because you're doing it to grow, to understand, to expand your consciousness. You're not doing it to numb yourself or to get away from the problems that you don't really know how or uh, want to take responsibility for. And to that end, he would also encourage individuals to focus on expanding their mind and consciousness. I can hear him often saying that you need to rise above your provincial or small-minded states. And how do you do that? Well, you pay attention to the world in the sense of observing uh, why people make the choices they do. You, you, you notice um, maybe the suffering in the world. So therefore, you don't just lock yourself in this uh, high-minded, closed-off, almost bigot-like approach to life. You realize that some of the problems in the world are there for not a good reason, but there, there is a reason why certain populations make the choices they do. There is a good reason why humans behave the way they do. It's not just because they're problematic and spiteful. It's because they've been raised in a way they don't know any better. And when we rise above our provincialism and our small-mindedness, we tend to be more compassionate. So this idea of expanding your mind and your consciousness really focuses on the idea of um, developing compassion but that doesn't happen by someone just telling you, be compassionate. Because what does that mean? Someone can tell you to be compassionate all day long. But if you, if you participate in the world and you pay attention to the reasons that people behave the way they do, or you try to figure out the real reasons that people behave the way they do, you will naturally become compassionate. You will naturally rise above provincialism and small-mindedness. And another way to do this is to read more broadly. And I'm not talking about confusing yourself with all kinds of different spiritual teachings. I mean, study history, study psychology, study philosophy, um, read about what, what life was like two to 300 years ago. And this happens all the time, particularly when, um, the idea or the topic comes up of, uh, are we still in Kali Yuga or the dark ages? I used to like entertaining that notion and, and talking about it with people, but I now know that unless someone's willing to go back and read history and to kind of get a sense of what life was like, like I said, 50, 100 years ago, 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, no, no amount of talking is going to convince anyone which yuga we are in or whether we're in the dark ages or whether we've come out of the dark ages. But if you read if you get a, a broader sense of the history of the world, if you get more interested in science and the understanding of how science has progressed, your mind and consciousness will naturally expand. So while Mr. Davis did put a focus on expanding your mind and consciousness through spiritual practice, he also felt it was very important to expand your mind and consciousness by just being aware of the world in general. Like I said, history, science, psychology, philosophy, get some new insights. There's always something more to learn. And he was this way until the very end of his life. He had such a vast library. And oftentimes when I would visit him, I would see these DVD and CD courses about history, about chemistry, about physics. And it was, you could tell he was interested in learning more and more and more. And he, he kept his mind, his brain, his nervous system, his consciousness growing for the entirety of his life. So to expand your mind and consciousness isn't simply meditate more. There's a lot more to it. And that can even be traveling to other countries, volunteering, being of service to people in difficult situations. These kinds of things will drastically open your mind and expand your consciousness. Essentially, those kinds of things will make you wiser, will make you more understanding, and will make you more compassionate naturally. It won't be something you have to force yourself to do because it's a spiritual ideal that a guru or a teacher or a tradition tries to beat into your head. And once again, this returns us to the ideas of being mentally, 
and emotionally mature because we have to be willing to learn more. We have to be willing to expand what we know about life, to explore these things. And it doesn't mean you believe everything that you read or that you hear, but when you've got some discernment and you are you are introduced to more and more uh, possibilities, your consciousness naturally expands. Also, the more emotionally and psycho, uh, more emotionally and psychologically, and even physically healthy you are, the easier it is for you to do this. Because when we when we are suffering from the traumas of the past, when we are suffering from um, the small mindedness of the community that we are raised in, when we are suffering from um, abuse or dogma from religions which really don't serve anyone or us we often don't have the energy or the ability to try to comprehend something more and so once again we see by coming back to this focus on mental emotional psychological and physical well-being that is what will naturally allow us to be have our consciousness enlarged because it's really hard to do when deep down inside you are wrestling with anxiety, depression, and the whole host of other factors that could be there. And the way that those are dealt with are finding ways to be mentally, emotionally mature. And that will provide the openness and the energy to be able to look around and accept other people's or not accept, but to be able to consider other points of view and other possibilities and so on. And finally, the most important part of what I learned from Mr. Davis was to, to always remember what is real and focus on that. And that's a hard thing, because what is real? I mean, that's what we're trying to figure out, right? But that's why we have these prayers and these mantras. You know, Lord, lead me from the unreal to the real. This is why we have spiritual teachers who, who hopefully have a sense of what is real. And they can help guide us to that. They might not be able to tell us exactly what it is, because as we've seen in this kind of previous discussion, if we're a little bit clouded or we're not quite ready, they can tell us what's real all day long, but we're not going to believe it or see it or be able to appreciate it. But a real spiritual teacher will constantly direct us to what is real. And, you know, I talked about this a little bit in uh, other podcasts and also um, within the Kriya Yoga Discipleship course, but it's worth mentioning. You know, we can see this world and everything that's going on in this world, and we do have a part to play as an individualized aspect of this infinite consciousness. But underneath all of that, underneath all of the names and the forms and the possibility for change and pleasure and pain, um, there is a reality, pure consciousness, spirit, which is unaffected by any of these changes. And spiritual teachers, all the ones that I have known we've read about and who have trusted and found to be authentic, always encourage their students to attend to nature, the changeable part of our lives, but to always keep wondering, keep directing attention and awareness back to that timeless, transcendent, infinite part of ourselves, which exists no matter what. And for me, this lesson was brought pristinely into focus um, towards the end of the time that Mr. Davis was alive. Um, I was going through a very difficult time, and Mr. Davis didn't say to me, Oh, son, pray in this way, or come see me, and I will make it all better, and the gods will descend from heaven, and everything will be transformed perfectly if you just have faith. He didn't say that. What he said was, always remember to be centered on the self in all circumstances. No matter what happens, continuously return your attention back to the self. And by self, he was referring to 
again, that infinite timeless reality, that infinite pure consciousness, which that realization in a sense is the whole point of yoga practice. And that, that was profoundly helpful to me. It was something that I'd always known. It was something that I had always heard and read about and believed. Oh yes, sure. I get that. But it wasn't until certain experiences arose in my life that I was kind of forced to take it seriously. And Mr. Davis was uh, a wonderful support in that time. And he was a wonderful support in that he maintained this authenticity of what this is all about. And that authenticity and what it's all about is to know our essence as spirit. No matter what happens in our life, no matter what comes and what goes, no matter what changes, it is that essence of spirit which is most important. And so that's been, it's just been profoundly helpful for me. And I, I do my best to share it with others when I can. And I hope that people pay attention to it now. Maybe you're in a difficult time um, and you need to hear this. But I also think it's really important for people to pay attention to it when they're not in difficult situations because it's much easier. Well, maybe it's much easier to have the time and the energy when things are going well to deeply contemplate what is real. So you want to take advantage of the times that you have in, in good times, when things are going well, when you have plenty of energy, plenty of resources, plenty of openness, there's not a lot of emergencies happening. Use that time to realize and recognize what is real. Essentially, that means to practice spiritually speaking, to do what you know will help you access these clearer states of consciousness. And then, of course, when things aren't going so well and there's difficult times, well, you can utilize that too, because that's a perfect time to wonder, well, geez, what is this all about? What is real here? So that was really one of the last, um, one of the last examples through his teaching that Mr. Davis um, imparted to me what was important. And there's probably many other things that I could say. I mean, I spent 18 years learning from Mr. Davis, reading his books, visiting with him, attending his lectures, and so on. Um, but as I sat down to reflect upon my experience with Roy Eugene Davis, what we just covered, that is what sticks out the most for me. And we'll just review this. So first, make your spiritual practice your highest priority. Don't make excuses. So make your spiritual practice your highest priority and don't make excuses. Focus on essentials. Don't be distracted by too many things. Be as mentally, emotionally, and spiritually mature as possible. Take care of your body and manage your resources well. Never affirm anything you don't want to be true for yourself. Meditate well, alertly, and effectively. Be conscious of the people you surround yourself with and aim to surround yourself with individuals who are mature, supportive, and respectful, and that you can be mature, supportive, and respectful towards. Expand your mind and your consciousness. Read more, keep learning, rise above provincial and small-minded states. Always have your highest aims in mind. Be a possibility thinker. Remember what is real and always focus on that. And before we conclude today, I want to read an affirmation, one of my favorite affirmations um, that Roy would say at the end of meditations but he also put it in a lot of his books, calendars, bookmarks, and so on. So he must have found it important. And this is a great affirmation. And he always writes, affirm with conviction. He doesn't just say affirm. He specifies, affirm with conviction. The radiance of my pure essence continuously illumines my mind and consciousness. 
The radiance of my pure essence continuously illumines my mind and consciousness. The radiance of my pure essence continuously illumines my mind and consciousness. And so this podcast is dedicated to Roy Eugene Davis, whose birthday will be coming up in just a few days. So thank you for taking the time to listen, and uh, I hope this has been inspiring for you. And once again, two books I would highly recommend, aside from Autobiography of a Yogi to keep you inspired on your path, is Paramahansa Yogananda, As I Knew Him, which was written by Roy Eugene Davis, and that focuses on Mr. Davis's time with his teacher, Paramahansa Yogananda. This episode of the Kriya Yoga podcast was made possible by donations from Kriya Yoga apprenticeship students and supporters of our Patreon community at www.patreon.com forward slash Kriya Yoga.